Hey folks, this is Brad Scott, pastor at First United Methodist Church in Sweetwater, Tennessee. And we are continuing with our Gospel of John Bible study. We're in the sixth chapter, and I'm going to attempt to do verses 16 through 21. I say attempt because I did this uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, when I went to publish it in the... Um, in the uh, podcast thing, it just suddenly disappeared. So it's windy today, and the internet is not acting up. I mean, it's not acting right, so um, it may disappear again today. But I had a good time doing this Bible study. It was one of my favorite ones because this is one of my favorite passages. And so um, I'm glad that you're here with us, and we can enjoy this time together Open your Bibles and open your hearts, and let's go to God in prayer. Dear Lord, be with us as we read this passage out of the Gospel of John. Let it sink deeply into the roots of our hearts and build us up into him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look at this. We Last time we had a podcast Bible study episode that actually got recorded, we were talking about feeding the 5,000. And it's interesting how this story gets placed as the next thing that happens. It's kind of a transitional piece because the miracle of feeding the 5,000 is followed up with uh, Jesus talking to the crowd about the bread of heaven. And we're going to talk about that in uh, probably in the next episode, we might get to a little bit of it today. I kind of doubt it, but um, but the um, but this kind of interrupts that flow. But it it's if you study the chronology and and chronology is not something that's solid in John's gospel. I'll just put it that way. Uh, John's remembering what he wants to remember when he wants to remember it, and he's not really concerned about the accuracy of A plus B equals C, he's he's generally just saying, okay, this happened. Oh, well, and this happened. And oh, and I remember the time this happened. You know, it's, it's more of a set of recollections and they're accurate in their own way, but they may not be a an accurate chronology. In other words, they may be out of order, out of sequence, but they we still find meaning in them, so it's okay that they're that way. John's understanding of how he was telling this is different, perhaps, than some of our understandings as we go to it. And that's one of the things you have to understand when you read the Bible. Um, it's, it's not meant to fall into the pattern of what you think history or science should be. It's, it's telling things on its own terms. Scripture tells the story of God and the story of human beings and the story of the relationship between God and human beings on its own terms. So here we are in the middle of this story. They've gathered up the fragments. There was more left over than there was to start with. And then we hear, heard in the 15th verse uh, on the last episode that Jesus uh, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, he did not choose to take anybody with him. 
So the disciples were left figuring, trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? And for some reason, they decide to get in a boat and go on across the sea. I guess they thought Jesus would meet them there. Maybe they felt like they were going home. Maybe they thought uh, this was over with and Jesus had run off and maybe they thought uh, they wouldn't see him again. Maybe, I don't know what they thought. It's hard to know what was going through their minds. But John starts this passage with these words, when evening came. I want to just dwell on those words a moment. You know, we talked about in the third chapter how Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And we talked about in the fourth chapter how Jesus met the Samaritan woman in the heat of the noonday sun. It was a bright, sunny day. And so there they are. Um, John doesn't always mean what we think he means when he talks about things like this. I take it when he tells us that it's dark. I think that's his way of saying someone in this story doesn't have faith. Nicodemus didn't have faith. Jesus was bringing the Samaritan woman to faith, so it was a sunny day that day. But without that moment, it would have been dark for her. But here we are. Evening came. Evening came. Jesus has gone up the mountain. The disciples are left alone. Evening has come. That's indicative of some kind of faith crisis going on with the disciples. Now, they've just watched a miracle unfold. They've just watched Jesus feed 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. And it's an amazing thing. And for John to say evening has come kind of makes you think, well, something's gone on here. Something has happened. Whenever the church is left without Jesus. Mm-mm-mm. Preach, preacher. Whenever the church is left without Jesus, it's dark. Evening has come. And the disciples are about to get into a boat. When we think about that, I think one of the things that we don't really think about much is allusions in Scripture to the church. Now, John is writing probably as much as 20, 30, maybe 40 years after this event occurred. 
and the church has been established in the time that John has, is writing. Maybe they've had some good days. Maybe they've had some bad days. Maybe they've learned that faith is a struggle. And maybe they've gotten off what they were supposed to be doing. Maybe evening has come to the church. So see, see what I'm saying when I say John is writing on different levels? He's, he's writing to talk about what happened then. He's writing to leave an impression on the church now. And he's writing about things in his own time. So this is serving several purposes. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, got into a boat. That vessel, that boat is a symbol of the church. And we're sailing on life's sea together as the church. You know, that one of the things that we have to remember, you know, the, the oldest archaeological evidence that we have for a Christian church is 200 years after Christ. So the architecture of church, structures that are dedicated to being the church, where Christians can gather and worship don't exist yet in John's world. So he's not talking about a building, is he? He's talking about a community and a community that is getting together and the disciples are getting together in this boat and they're going to sail on the sea, starting across the sea to Capernaum. Capernaum is kind of central to Jesus' early ministry. He did a lot of things in Capernaum. That's where the synagogue was, where Jesus spoke and kind of got everybody upset when he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You can go to Capernaum today and you can see a foundation of a early synagogue very close to the seashore in the uh, biblical town of Capernaum. And this is where we believe the Sermon on the Mount probably happened. He's on a, on a hillside overlooking the sea. Uh, Matthew calls it the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Luke chooses to call it the Sermon on the Plain. So whether it happened on a mountainside or whether it happened on a plain, we figure it happened somewhere in this vicinity around Capernaum. And what's going to follow after this story, when we get into Jesus talking about the bread of heaven, you know, he's going to have a long period of time that he's going to talk. It goes from verses 22 through um, pretty much verse 71, or at least 65. That's a long discourse, as we call it, a long, a long speech by Jesus. And um, we'll look at that, but, you know, 
they're going back to Capernaum because Capernaum is the safe place. That's where a lot of them live. It's kind of like going home, okay? Now, Jesus has just done this big miracle. And what do you do? Just go back home. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Can you ever truly go back home after you meet Jesus? Can you, When you see Jesus' power exemplified through a sign like feeding the 5,000, you're just going to turn around and go home? Well, Jesus has gone up on the mountain by himself, and he didn't invite anybody to go with him, so it's kind of awkward, isn't it? There's an awkward moment in the disciples' life, lives, and, um, and they're going across the sea. Well, guess what John says next? <laughs> Remember, we started out, it's evening. Now it says, it was now dark. Oh, man. That's uh, that's filled with meaning, isn't it? It doesn't take long for the disciples to be in the dark. And uh, Jesus had not yet come to them. Well, if Jesus isn't with you, then you're in the dark. There you go. It's that simple. Verse 18 says, The sea became rough, because a strong wind was blowing. Oh, boy, there's a wind outside my house today. Uh, it woke me up this morning, rattling things around the house. And uh, there for a minute, I wondered if we still had a roof. <laughs> but uh, we, um, we know the wind can be powerful. And we know the way the uh, geography of this area in the Holy Land is the wind will come off the Mediterranean Sea and go across some of the plains, the Judean plains, and um, on its way to the Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee is not very big. It's really just a lake, um, something like, I think someone said eight miles wide or long, eight, maybe eight miles long and five miles wide or something like that. I'm not sure. It's not... It's not much bigger than some of the lakes we have here in East Tennessee. And I um, don't know where everyone uh, listening to this is, but you can just imagine, a, it, you know, it is a freshwater lake. Um, and it's, you know, a good place to fish for, um, you know, uh, lake-style fish, fish that will live in, in fresh water and what happens with that when that wind comes over the hills around the Galilean lake it tends to bring a clash of air systems and you know when cold air meets warm air you know that's the recipe for a storm and so what they're saying is when the wind started blowing, a storm is coming up. And you can be out on the sea, it can be tranquil, it can be fine, and then all of a sudden, just all of a sudden, it starts getting stormy. And on a small boat, I don't know how small this boat is, I guess if the disciples are, if this is the 12, you know, that's a boat big enough for that many. And they have found boats, um, in the bottom of the lake that they dredged out and 
studied and carbon dated and they think they go back to that time period and they would have been boats big enough for this crowd and um would have been what they probably fished in the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing and when they had rowed about three or four miles so they're about in the middle of the sea right if it's about four miles wide or five miles wide or something like that and they're they've gone out three or four miles um they're in the middle of the sea. They don't have a, anything to anchor onto. They don't have any way to make the waves calm down. They don't have anywhere to go to be in safety. And did I tell you it's dark? So in the middle of the dark with the winds and the waves, that had to be a fearful thing. They didn't have flashlights. They didn't have anything really. And if it's stormy, if it's stormy and it's, if there's rain with it, well, it doesn't say there's rain, but if it's stormy, you figure it's probably cloudy. So the only lights they had to go by would have been the lights that they navigated by, the stars and the moon and all that, would have probably been hidden. So this is pretty dark time. Um, it sounds like one of those novels that you've heard about where the opening line is, it was a dark and stormy night. And so here it is in the midst of this dark time very stormy when they had rowed about three or four miles which the greek says 25 or 30 stadia that's a greek measurement that uh, we think is about that number of miles when that had happened they saw jesus walking on the sea now remember i just told you it's dark it's stormy they are filled with fear because they think their lives are in peril and danger. And all of a sudden, they see this figure walking to them. Now, John tells us it's Jesus. He wants to put his readers to ease at the very beginning of this story. But you've got to realize the disciples are not at ease. They interpreted a lot of things in those days as being signs and being divine intervention and so forth and it could be either evil demonic or it could be good but here they are at a time that they're fearful and fear is a a negative emotion and now they're seeing this figure walking on the water toward them and they don't have any idea who it is this is it coming near the boat and they were terrified. Well, one of the ways we get terrified is when we don't allow God to be with us. And they already got in a boat without Jesus, right? So here they are in the darkness, in the storm, with this figure coming toward them. It had to be a terrifying moment for them because you don't see things like that every day but he says to them now listen to this this is what Jesus says it is I do not be afraid when I was in seminary I had the opportunity to do some study of scripture and one of the projects that I worked on was 
studying the different times that human beings have an encounter with the divine or with a messenger from God. You know, God either appears personally or God sends a messenger on his behalf. In all of those situations, the appearance is supernatural. You don't see angels every day. So if you saw an angel, uh, you know, you would, it would startle you. Every time it happens, it is accompanied with a recognition of who the source is, God, and an assurance not to be afraid. It's I, do not be afraid. Uh, you know, this happens every time in Scripture when you go back and look at it. I did a table of it, and, and, and uh, all the stories I could find of that, and I saw it every time. It was these two pieces are never absent from these stories. The identification of the divine, it is I, or the Lord is near you, or whatever it says, and then do not be afraid. Well, we need the assurance from God that it's God we're dealing with. Jesus, in this moment, doesn't say, hey, buds, it's Jesus. No, he didn't say that. He goes a step beyond that. Because John, from the very beginning, when he's talking about who Jesus is, the Word made flesh who's come among us, he talks about the identification with between Jesus and God being very similar, being, being the same. The Word was God. And... Uh, here Jesus chooses to use an identification that sounds like the divine name of God. The Hebrew people and the disciples would have spoken a dialect of Hebrew called Aramaic. They, they would have known immediately when he used this term that it sounded like the divine name. The divine name is something that uh, they don't pronounce. They, they don't say it because they don't feel worthy to say it. But it's, it's written through consonants that sound like Y-H-W-H. And when you put some vowels with that, uh, what we've come up with to pronounce is Yahweh. But it's a verb form for I am. Do you remember back in Exodus? I think it was, uh, let's see. I want to say it was Exodus chapter 16. Uh, no, that's not right. Uh, but in, in Exodus, um, Moses meets God and God tells him to go to Pharaoh and this and that. And he said, well, who shall I say sent me? And and God says, I am that I am. That's his name. And so here Jesus says, it is I. It's another form of that same verb. 
but it's also an identifying form of the name of God. And Jesus is taking that name and revealing that this is a moment of revelation to the disciples. A moment when they have just finished seeing a miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They've left Jesus to go on the mountain to pray, and Jesus comes down from the mountain just filled with divinity, filled with it, overflowing with it, and speaks this word of identification of himself in which he reveals his identification with God. It is I. See, there's a lot in that in that phrase, and we kind of skip over that as we read it in English because we're not paying attention. But Jesus is giving his divine identification. This is like flashing his God badge. And, um, and with it saying, do not be afraid. You know, and these are all with active verbs. When Jesus speaks in John's gospel, almost every time there's an active verb which defines an action that he's identifying for the disciples to take. You know, go, come and see, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And then here's do not fear. You know, fear isn't helpful. Fear is a good response in, you know, it's, it's in that, it's part of what feeds the fight or flight syndrome that we have. And it, it, can, it can help us. Fear can be helpful. But here Jesus is saying there's no reason to be afraid because God is here. And here he is incarnate before them as the human being they know is Jesus, identifying himself as the divine. Now, we don't get in John's gospel in this story, we don't get the thing where Peter comes to him and sinks in the water. That's a, I love that story, but John doesn't give us that because <laughs> John seems to have a problem with Peter. Every time Peter does something, the disciple whom Jesus loves appears, and there's there's competition. I think it's good-natured competition. I think it comes from their life together with Jesus. I just imagine these guys kidded each other all the time and poked fun at each other. And so John doesn't give us the story of Peter coming to Jesus. What he gives us instead is this supernatural moment in verse 21 after Jesus has identified himself and after he has told the disciples not to fear, it says they wanted to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. Did you get that? They wanted to take him into the boat. It doesn't say they took him in the boat. They desired him collectively. Everybody on the boat wanted Jesus in the boat. This is what John's telling us. When the church desires Jesus, oh my goodness, mm, I could preach this. When the church desires Jesus, it ends up where it's supposed to be. And underscore that. Get you a pen or a pencil and put a line under that verse. 
Because what it's saying to us is God wants us to desire him. We should desire nothing more than Jesus. This is the same group who left the shore without Jesus. Jesus disappeared up the mountain and they didn't wait on him. They went on going home, I guess. Going home without Jesus? But once Jesus appeared in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the storm, saying, it is I, do not be afraid. They wanted him in the boat and they end up all of a sudden at the place they were headed, the land toward which they were going. And what happens with that is if, they, if they've ended up at the land, that means they're no longer subject to the wind and the waves, right? doesn't say Jesus stilled the storm for them. Jesus brought them out of the storm. And glory to God, that's what he's going to do to you, for you and for me when we desire him. He's going to bring us out of the storm. The storm may not stop. He may not say, peace be still to every storm. But if we desire him in our hearts, he brings us to a place of safety. Oh, I can serve a God like that. I think you can too. So I hope you'll uh, keep reading John's Gospel with me. I'll be back on the next episode as we go into the section where Jesus begins teaching. And I look forward to that and look forward to our time together. Share this uh, Bible study with people you know if you like it. And... Uh, let us know if there's anything we can pray about. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.